I think this evening uh, we'll have more uh, specific um, Dhamma presentations dependent upon your questions. Um, So let's have a few 20 minutes or so of meditation. Cook something up. (laughs) Don't think too much.
So I have a question here, which says, um, please talk about prayer and its place as part of daily practice. Is it the same as metta or is it wish? So, um, well, again, yeah. Yes, that's what word prayer means. So this, you know, in, in theistic, theistic religions, you generally have prayer as a, often this is a kind of petitionary prayer that is asking for advice or help or guidance or um, sense of connection to something bigger, divine, Basically, something that's on my side, hopefully. <laughs> so, kind of basic help. Um, in Buddha Dharma, you don't really do that so much, though in some forms of Buddhism you do, like you have um, prayers or to bodhisattvas, compassion, asking for guidance. But um, fundamentally, these devotional forms, devotional expressions, Buddhism are much more seen as uh, like Buddha is, is, is just the sense of using an image or an idea or something like that to get this sense of opening your mind, so a devotional sense. And it's really in that sense of the opening of the mind, the stilling and the opening of the mind that we can find guidance. So if we, you know, have prayer to the Buddha, it's really just uh, that sense of stillness and opening to widening, softening, opening the mind and the heart in this devotional way. So that's not really metta, nor is it wish, it's just the devotional sense and you can, you know, it's sometimes just a way of almost like checking in what's happening or what's important. Mm. I think people often find this sense of, um, you know, just keeping in touch with their with their wider intuitive and and uh, faculties. So we sometimes, you know, people can do that. Prayer can also be used as a sense of concern for the welfare of other people, other beings. So then it's much more a metta practice, praying or wishing for the welfare of others, or as we sometimes do, the, the sharing of merit or sharing of blessings, which is, again, rather like an extended metta, bhavana, where you go through the, anyone that comes up in your mind, you know, living or dead, near or far, may they benefit, may they be well. So it's more like an extended metta practice in that sense. And uh, yeah, every day, can do this every day. It's good because it does um, help to take one's focus to a wider sense, you know, rather than just being, you know, very much in what I'm doing, what's happening for me. So we've got our eyes on the ground. It's like 
stopping and pausing and lifting the mind to a wider space. Um, So even recollection of death can do that that for us. It's widening to something bigger and more timeless than our normal daily concerns. So it's a good practice in that, that respect. Okay. Is there any? Uh, I've got another written one down here, but I thought was anything freshly cooked. <laughs> yeah. Uh, how one knows that the personality view is completely abandoned? Couldn't hear. Uh, how one knows that the personality view is completely abandoned? That he or she actually was at the bottom. How does one know when the personality? How does one know when the personality view is completely abandoned? Right. Person next uh, existence might forget that he's Sotapanna. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. What are the indicators? Let's say you practice well and you reach that state of Sotapanna. How do you know that? How do you know you're a Sotapanna? Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. Mm. <laughs> so the question is how do you know that personality you has vanished? And how do you know that you're a stream enterer or a sotapanna? And one of the definitions or the definition of a stream enterer is a person in whom personality view, uh, doubt about the Dhamma, doubt about practice and attachment to systems and customs. These three uh, forms have disappeared, have vanished. So how do you know that? How do you know they've vanished? I guess, simply speaking, you you check in with it. Uh, <laughs> yeah. On an intellectual level, it's pretty easy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It makes sense, you know. Yeah. You could convince yourself, oh, this is just, you know, mm-hmm. just mm-hmm. a matter. Mm-hmm. But uh, at the same time, it's only on a superficial intellectual level. Mm-hmm. Well, these are more reflexes than just intellectual, because we all have a personality, uh, and everybody, you know, has some kind of personality. It's a normal psychological development to have a personality. Um, the question really is, is, is how, whether one's attached to it. Yeah. So, you know. And so we may not be checking in with that because we have this personality form. And you may not, actually, who is this? So there may, it, it's, still, it's still there, you know, but whether one's attached to it or not only really uh, gets checked when the personality is maybe threatened, like by death, for example. Then you start, or by... Uh, blame or, or or social disgrace, then you start to see whether you're still hanging on to something. So if those things are not occurring, you may not know that you're attached or not attached to personality view because you haven't had a you haven't had an examination. Examinations tend to come when when you get shocked or rocked around. <laughs> yeah.
<laughs> you want to say on that one, ready? Yeah? Um, in your former answer, the answer to the first question, you said something about the wider intuitive awareness. Yeah. Um, are we born with that? Are we born knowing just as we're born with ignorance? Is it innate? How would you develop it? So the question is, are, do we have an innate uh, intuitive awareness? Is it there when we're born? Um, or is it something that we develop over time? And uh, guess who will answer that one? So I think that sums it up. (laughs) What do you think? (laughs) That's probably the safest. Probably a combination. <laughs> Mind does develop over time, doesn't it? You know, we probably, you know, people sometimes have, uh, you can have memories of when you were in the womb, you know, which our conscious thinking mind generally wouldn't have memories of, and yet you can have these regressions, you can have hypnosis or even particular things you can, exercise you can do will take you back to uterine memories, which are obviously, say, precognitive, that is, they're not something that's come through what we normally associate with our, you know, our thinking and cognitive faculties. So it's, you know, to be conscious to be bought, to be conscious, to have consciousness is to have some form of of awareness, but you know which which a, an embryo or a fetus has, and uh, they 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 can check that these little ones, while they're still in the womb, can respond to stimulation and sense what's going on in some some fundamental way. But then, as you you as you develop, 
or as that little one develops, then it starts to orient around the difference between sights and sounds. You know, now when you're in the womb, it don't really matter because there's nothing to see, really, nothing to do. <laughs> so, it's a, so you're just kind of very fundamentally attuned, perhaps, to energies and, and chemicals and things like that, neurohormones. But then as it develops then the differentiation of the, six, of the sense consciousness starts to occur in the formulation, you know. So, so, the, so, you know, for a little one who can't see or hear very early, there's no sense differentiation because the sense organs haven't really developed. So our consciousness is still very, very unified and primary. It's not broken up into those six sight, sound, touch, taste, and, uh, you know, when hearing, thinking, and so on. So <clears throat> then as, you, as you're born, then you come into a, a world where those consciousnesses are very important. So then they arise, and then you get a differentiation of that. And, uh, and then, so that develops on top, or as a kind of, sometimes called the six sense, six-fold sense base. That's, I don't think that's, but it's nice to play on that word as if something that was a unified thing has now become folded up into six different separative functions. And yet they're still containing the same primary quality of being able to be sentient, receptive, effective. Yeah? And then on top of that, then eventually you get the thinking faculty, which is able to, to really you know, differentiate uh, not just sights and sounds, but also this is me, this is not me. You know, this thing here, this little pink thing, that belongs to me. You know, if I bite it, it hurts. You know, this is the me bit, and that's my mother. And you know, she comes and goes, and she, she's there, and so forth. So you're able to get these very, kind of start programming the, the thinking mind. And that all, that's all kind of further developed, and so on, and so on, and so on. The process just keeps further developing. And yet, the fundamental sense of, primary sentiency is still there but it's just got a lot more stuff on it and I would postulate that when we talk about you know intuitive awareness there is a we can come back to something that's must, much less differentiated a much more primary sense of feeling not good feeling good feeling aware feeling knowing feeling being but it's not differentiated into self and other Sight, sound, touch, mind, thought. And so, you know, that, that's what I would postulate, you know, if you want to look at it that, in that way. Mm. It's almost before we're born. What is it that we, you know, when we incarnate, consciousness enters a, a womb, consciousness finds a physical form. What, what's that, you know? What is that consciousness? It's obviously not doing a lot of thinking. Uh, and yet it is still receptive to primary impulses, formulation. Mm. Yeah. Regarding the, the first question, uh, sort of on screen entry, I seem to remember, and I'm not sure if the same source at all, so Doubt that that's also translated as unshakable faith in the Triple Gem Buddha 
comprehend that one is incapable of, of transcending or breaking five precepts. Yeah, so one of the other characteristics of uh, stream mantra, um, so first of all, we're looking at what isn't there, which was the uh, personality view and uh, skepsis or doubt and attachment to systems and customs. The more affirmative way of defining a stream mantra is there, someone who has an unshakable faith or confidence, trust in Buddha, Dharma, Sangha, and also an unshakable uh, connection and, and uh, to the five precepts. I think it's still possible to transgress, but you certainly know you transgressed it and you, well, you know, you pull back to it, mm-hmm. I would feel. But so that one really knows that and is highly attuned to that, the moral sense. Mm-hmm. That gives one a much more positive way to, to steer, to determine. Mm-hmm. And when it, says un- when it says unshakable, it means uh, not just on a good day, but even when things are really bad, you still hold the five precepts, and you still hold to that sense of Buddha, the knowing, the teacher, the guide. You're, you're able to take guidance from that. And Dhamma, trust in Dhamma, trust in Sangha. So, so it said, um, you know, like one of these suttas where this one of the great supporters, Anatta Pindika, is on his deathbed and he's, you know, a bit overcome by this uh, uncertainty and fear of death and uncertainty. And then the, I think Ajahn, the Venerable Sariputta comes to see him and says, well, what about this, that and the other? You know, do you know this? He says, oh, yes. Ah, oh, yes. And he suddenly realizes because he comes back out of this rather panicky state. And Yes, I have unshakable faith in Buddha Dharma. Yes, of course. And it sort of clears his mind and so he's able to pass away peacefully. So some it's there, but yet he, he wasn't connected to it. You know, well, he lost contact with it in his uh, thinking mind or his emotions weren't in contact with it. That's how it can seem to be there and yet you're not really relating to it. Like we get lost, we get a bit panicky or something. Yeah. Could you speak about your path to becoming a monk? My path to becoming a monk? More an accident, really, than a path. (laughs) 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 Happy accident. Well, I never really found out what, what to, didn't, didn't know what to do. I mean, I never found anything I particularly felt that motivated towards. I went through the school and then, you know, what, what next? They say, go to university, so go to university, then what next? I don't know what next. Didn't seem to be anything particularly that I was that motivated towards. So then I just thought I'd travel and around and explore things. And so that was the 1960s in which exploration was, was both internal and external. <laughs> <laughs> so some familiar pathways, <laughs> internal and external. And uh, then I realized this isn't getting me anywhere. And... Uh, 
So I was in, I think it was in India where I had the real shake-up of very severely ill with amoebic dysentery. So I was getting really, really ill and uh, lost a huge amount of weight and quite delirious. And then somebody fortunately found me and gave me some medicine. So I realized just how you can lose the whole thing, you know. So it was, it was, a, it was a real, what they call Deva Dutta, heavenly messenger, something that suddenly comes in and reminds you that, hey, you know, this isn't the dress rehearsal, this is real stuff, you could die. And so, but I was in India because I was trying to, you know, find out what was the point, what was the meaning of life, what was the point of life. So that I had this sense, well, maybe, you know, somewhere in India, somebody will know about what it is, if I can find them. <laughs> but I didn't, I just found amoebic dysentery instead. <laughs> So, so then I thought, well, I'd better get out of here. So I, I went to Thailand because that was the convenient way to get out of India. And I just happened to cross. I landed in Bangkok. I didn't like Bangkok at all. So I got out of there the next day, went up north. And um, I hadn't, I'd sort of read a little, just a little bit about Buddhism not much at all, but I'd, I'd seen the picture, the emblem, the image of the Buddha, which is always very attractive, you know, this being of great peace and grace and composure. But I never really read much, a bit of Zen. So, but then when I was in, in um, Thailand, and I w- got out of Bangkok, and I went to Ayutthaya, which is the old capital of Thailand, when it, and it's full of enormous Buddha statues and temples. I was walking around, seeing all these massive Buddhas. Wow, what's this? So that just resonated something, you know, suddenly, what's this? You know, it's rather interesting how you're seeing in the image of a Buddha something, something (laughs) happens, a bell bell is rung somewhere gong is wrong somewhere, something seems to resonate to that. What's that? Then I, when I, was, I went to, right up to the north to a place called Chiang Mai in North Thailand, and I was wandering around the town, I, there was a meditation class being taught in English in, a, in a, one of the small monasteries. So I went to the meditation class and then I thought, well, this would be a good thing to do. Um, could be handy. <laughs> so, you know, something one could learn, useful. So I went to the meditation class and there was a person, the monk was there and he was teaching this um, mindfulness of breathing, basically. So, and he was sitting, the most imp- only thing I really remember about it was two things. One, he was sitting beside this window which didn't have any glass in it open window and there was he had an, a lamp an oil lamp in front of him because they didn't have electricity and as he was sitting all these flying ants were coming in through the window attracted to the lamp and they were crawling all over him and he was giving this talk his hands crawling all the flying ants crawling over him every now and then he just sort of carefully picked one out of his mouth and put it away 
I thought, well, that's really cool. He wasn't getting upset by it. Or when you see these wriggly things crawling all over, he just totally... So that was impressive. I was taking that in. (laughs) This is what Buddhists can do. (laughs) And then he... Then there's meditation, which is just the... Amazing, because it's like falling down a mine shaft, you know, you're just sitting there, whee, and this complete kind of uh, swirling mass of thoughts with that one mindful inhalation in it. (laughs) 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 But I did somehow recognize that I could watch, I could be aware of my mind. So I thought, how can I be aware of my mind? If I'm aware of my mind, then obviously I'm not my mind, if I'm the awareness of that. How does that happen? So that just, again, it was not terribly profound, but it just rang rang a bell. So at the end of the class, I found myself going up to this monk and saying, you know, I want to do, can I do some more of this? Can I go to a monastery and stay there? And he said, yeah, okay. So I went to the, to the monastery and um, took to be in the monastery, you can go there, but you have to keep the eight precepts, which is what we're doing here. And they gave me a little kuti, a hut to stay in. Okay, fine. And uh, after a, a few days of this, I got so I could sort of sit for 10 minutes or 15 minutes, which is pretty impressive as far as I was concerned. And then I thought, they were bringing food every day. Well, I could do more of this. Why not stay with this? <laughs> so I stayed with it for another week. And at the end of the week, I, th- I had to leave because of a visa expired. So I thought, well, I'll come back. I could stay for a few months. Why don't I become a monk for a few months? Because they, you, know, they see you, you can just do it for a few months. So I, thought, so I decided I'd come back and be a monk for a few months. So I came back and then shaved my head. Became what's called a summonera or a novice monk. And um, thought, well, stay with us until something better comes along. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's strange I'd never had a, a conscious religious inclination I'd hardly ever been to church or anything you, know, you, get standard, you get religious education in school in England but it was all like fairy stories as far as I was concerned it just wasn't anything meaningful but I did have a real some deep question of anguish of what is this life about? What are we doing here? You know, what, what's the point of it all? And it was a deep anguish. It seemed also so meaningless. You know, just this and that and this and that and this and that and then you die. Gee, that's it? <laughs> so that, that was really the, the, the thing. And then this strange resonance with... Um, Buddha and with meditation. Yeah. 
then, then you can stay, stay as a summonero, which is a novice, but then they all felt, well, why don't you become a bhikkhu, which is more full, full commitment. I wasn't too keen on that idea because I didn't like the idea of commitment, really. I wanted to be able to get out when I wanted to. And they said, well, you can still leave when you want to. But, uh, so I still wasn't too keen on it, really, because it felt, you know, I was, all, I was doing all right as a no- novice, you know, just keep my head down, nobody bothers me. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I didn't want to be kind of part of something, you know, sort of fully card-carrying member of the thing. I just wanted to be somebody in the background. Uh, but then we, we did have this thing of going for alms every day, walking in, into town for alms every day. And that's an incredibly uh, beautiful experience because you, it's a beautiful time of day just after dawn. It's still cool. After about 8 o'clock in Thailand, it's getting pretty hot. But 5 o'clock, it's pleasantly cool. And you go and everything is just still quiet and people are just getting up. And so it's a very quiet and uh, gentle time of day. People just kind of getting their day together. But they'd be coming out and, and with little bowls, basins of rice. And as you walk past, they would say, Niman Pra, Niman, which means we invite you. So then you come over and you, you just don't, the idea is not even to make eye contact. You just hold your bowl Look in, look in the bowl, and then they put a spoon of rice in, and then, then you move on. That's it. There's no how you're doing or anything like that. It's just that, and then you move on. So you go through a whole town, like for an hour or so, with people doing that. And these people didn't look particularly well, you know, they weren't wealthy people. And they, they would really want to give you some rice. Uh, and particularly as some very poor people would, you know, would still be half asleep when you went by and they hear the sound of a monk coming by and wake up, oh, Nimon, 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 wait, 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 and drag themselves together so they could put a bit of rice in the bowl. So it's very touching. It was the best experience. The meditation was terrible. <laughs> but, but the arms round was just so, so joyful, because it's so humbling as well. To, 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 to experience this human contact. So I was just so amazed by all that. And then at the time, then after a few months of being in the monastery, they, they had a, twice a year, they had something like a retreat for, which was for the female supporters of the monastery would come, and there like hundreds of them. And they would make a big commitment for about 10 days and they, they, 700 women turned up the monastery and they'd wear white and they'd take the eight precepts and they'd apply themselves to meditation with great uh, conscientiousness and, and effort and they'd just all be sleeping in the sala, just all lumped in together. So they made a big commitment, big renunciation just to sleep on the floor of the, of the dining hall, you know, no privacy, and then do the, get up and do this walking meditation, very slow walking meditation. So it was kind of impressive. And um, I felt a lot of gratitude to all these people who 
who I'd done nothing for, really, who just gave this support unconditionally. So an immense sense of gratitude for, to them. And then, so what happened was, one of these retreats, you know, the word got out that there were these Westerners, was myself and two or three others, and uh, they'd really like to sponsor them as monks. So you'd be a monk, you have to be sponsored. That is, somebody offers robes and bowl. And so they said to me, you know, these, they'd really be totally delighted if they could offer you a robes and bowl to be a, to be a bhikkhu because that would make them so happy to be able to offer you the robes and bowl. Uh, so I felt so, so grateful, touched. I thought, well, I'll do it because they've been so, these people have been so incredibly generous to me and if it makes them feel happy, I'll do it. <laughs> so I decided I'd do it. I mean, it wasn't averse to it. I just didn't feel really that prepared or ready. But then that, that, that sense of, uh, you know, what these people had offered and their devotion and their sacrifice was so moving. And I thought, well, if B being, you know, taking on this commitment for even for a, a week is going to mean something special to them, then I can offer that. I can do that. So I did take the bhikkhu ordination and after a, I, it wasn't I still imagined that after a while I'd be a couple of years or so I'd be out of it but then when I came back to um, Britain again the same thing occurred really you know there was a lot people would come for miles around just to see monks so this isn't just a Thai thing it's a human thing that somehow you represent something worthwhile or different or, you know, meaningful. So I thought, well, why don't I do this, you know, stay with this? So because it just seemed a good thing to be doing. I didn't really think I was worth worthy of it, that's all. I, thought, I always thought it was a good, beautiful thing, but I just didn't think I, I, was, I was good enough for it, <laughs> you know. So I always felt a little bit embarrassed because people making offerings, and because I didn't think I was really worthy of offerings. <laughs> but uh, it seemed that it, in Britain there were so few monks that to be able to help out and help Ajahn Sumedho and help the monastery was a good thing to do. So I, I stayed with it. I'm grateful, I did. Very grateful. Sorry. Grateful. <laughs> Thank you. Grateful also. Yeah. Yeah. I have another written down question here. Could you say more about nothing or nothing? <laughs> say something about nothing. <laughs> this. This refers to uh, something I was commenting on or saying the other day when I was saying the flower vase, that the word is obviously not the thing and that a vase broken in pieces would not be a vase or vase. But in its unbroken state, there can be sense contact with it. 
So in what sense is it not a thing? Is that not a thing? Or I was saying there are no such things as things. Well, the question itself, you know, does in fact give one the answer because there can be sense contact with it. So it must be a thing. Well, it's only a thing because there's sense contact with it. (laughs) You know, if there were no seeing, where would the vase, where would the vase be? Where is it now? So it arises dependent upon sense contact. And as we all recognize that the sight of a flower is not the same as the taste of a flower. So which is the real flower? The taste, the sight, the fragrance. They're all quite different, aren't they? You know, the fragrance of a flower is not the same as the sight of a flower. So which is the real flower? Now, you, you, you know, if, if, it, if it wasn't a combination of all of those, it wouldn't be a flower. So it requires sense contact. It requires uh, not just one sense contact, but several. It requires perception, which means the act of recognizing it. It requires attention focusing on it. So it requires the coming together of what's called nama, nama rupa and, con- and vijnana. Nama, naming, rupa, form, vijnana, consciousness. So consciousness, the basic sense of being able to receive an impression and internalize it. Yeah? So it's not just there but known. So that's consciousness. Nama refers to the way that consciousness differentiates that by perception and by the act of attention, by feeling and so forth. So that, that's the, the differentiation of that into a particular discrete form. And that there is a something there, rupa. You know? So all those have to come together to have that experience. So without that, it doesn't exist. So this is what the principle called dependent co-arising which uh, uh, is to be you know, checked out and studied, but really means that no, no, there can be no such thing, <laughs> but every apparent thing is really the coming together of factors such as uh, attention, uh, intention, perception, contact, and of course something that's there to be contacted plus uh, a functioning sense consciousness. So everything depends upon this, com- this continual coming together of these mi- mental and material uh, faculty factors. It gets complicated, but that's, that's the basic principle. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Does what slow down? Just investigating the intention. Oh, yeah, right, right. So, okay, can I just sum this up? If this is what you mean. 
the this experience of becoming, and you referring to a comment I made the other day about the feeling tone and the mental intention, and does that mental intention affect the quality of becoming? Yeah. Is that correct? That we like to know. Yeah. Well, basically, yes, it does. Um, so, if you so, for example. Uh, the quality of intention or chetana can be uh, discerned as is it ethical? In other words, is it inclination towards truthfulness, harmlessness, generosity, or is it going the other way? So that will affect the becoming. It will either send it towards a, a, a skillful state of becoming or to an unskillful state of becoming. So that's one way in which intention uh, changes the nature of becoming. You can also, becoming can be term, seen in terms of it's the level of uh, uh, factors such as mindfulness and concentration affect the nature of intention. Because with mindfulness, your intention is just to be present. So that definitely, you know, blunts the arrow, if you like. It's no longer rushing off. And, and samadhi would tend to soften the whole experience, uh, so it's no longer uh, rushing on. You know, so mindfulness basically checks that careening of the mind. So it's just this and that and this and that darting around. Mindfulness, the function of it is to, to quell distractedness and agitation so that then the becoming will be much more lucid and clear and unified. So, you, you know, so, that, so there's that trajectory too. That's when we say... Uh, the samatha or calming and steadying and the last thing that affects intentionality is insight so with insight what becomes cultivated is is the recognition whatever whatever becoming becomes it changes it passes away and it's unsatisfactory so when that goes very deeply the appetite for becoming wanes (laughs) so the intentionality starts to lessen and relax and become more contented where we are and, and so that, that that also affects the quality of of inclination yeah with when the sense of uh, there's not, nothing can be held or grasped that really again this is just the idea isn't it but as a direct experience that tends to ch- checks the quality of tanha or thirst which is, of course, how, how volition or intention gets captured by that craving to be, to have, so that if that starts getting undercut, then the process of becoming is uh, severely modified and undermined. So there, there can be an ending of that. Yeah. Thank you. the right thing to uh, that it's beautiful to 
express that wish, but at the same time, you know that all beings will not be in this They'll be unhappy. Some will. They mm -hmm. will deceive each other. I mean, the, the food chain, you know, the big ones and the small ones, that, that, uh, 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 that they will be aggressive and hurtful. And it's, 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 uh, it's sad. It seems you should wish it, even though these things will, unhappy things will still exist contrary to your wish. Could you, or that's my experience, could you comment? Yeah. So the question is about we are on the Metta Sutta wishing all, may all beings be at peace, may all beings be at ease. But we recognize that they will not be at peace or be at ease. They will probably quarrel and so forth. So what's the, what's the point? <laughs> Is that what you're asking? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it feels like a good thing to do, even though it won't be fulfilled. Correct? Is that what you just said? The wish will never be fulfilled. In the world. Yeah, and it's yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, it's even more important for us to continue to develop <clears throat> that kind of uh, outreach in our hearts because it helps us to realize this in ourselves and we start with where we are <clears throat> so if we were to stop wishing that, it would be like giving up. But because we hold that aspiration for ourselves as well as everyone else, then it's like we're making that possibility develop for ourselves and everyone else. But we can only have an effect to begin with on ourselves. It's very difficult to control anyone else, even to control our own hearts and minds, as we've all been noticing. But, but we still keep trying. We don't give up. And the effort, the effort 
is purified by that intention that may this be for me as well as for all beings. And if we continue to develop in this way, then um, perhaps that quality will influence someone who we're in contact with. And then they might start wishing it too. And we develop a field of goodness around us that has an effect. And it's not about being perfect, but it's about having an aspiration to understand the power of this goodness, of this friendly, loving, unconditional well-wishing to all beings. And then each one is working out their karma in the way they do. These exalted states of mind have a great fruit for us in our own spiritual cultivation. And as long as we are doing that work, that keeps the possibility of that aspiration alive in the world. So it, it's, it's not like we don't know to what extent we, we ourselves will perfect it. But by perfecting the four states, we're dispelling darkness and negativity in ourselves little by little, little by little. And we start with, well, it's good enough. And we just keep doing as much as we can. And regardless of whether other people do it or not, we don't stop because we recognize the beauty the preciousness of that mind state, that, that kind of work, then compassion comes in there and appreciative joy. And the equanimity is, the, is the, the real culmination of that. If we can develop this metta, this loving kindness, without expectation, without it being dependent on any result, then there, there comes into a flower, of, um, a peace, which is beyond the results of our wishing. So metta that has upeka with it is even more powerful. It's not the quality of loving kindness isn't dependent on what results it has or not. We just keep, you know, someone is upset with us and we still learn or develop the ability to wish them well. We, we may not condone their action. We may not condone their speech. But we still believe in the possibility and embrace the possibility of their goodness awakening in them one day by holding to this goodness in ourselves. So it's a protection. If we develop the four exalted states of mind, we protect others as we protect ourselves from the harm of their ill will. We're not... It's like deflecting the possibility of ill will growing in us if we 
if we hold to developing a heart of loving-kindness or developing a heart of compassion. It's a great protection. And then it, it also um, allows the path to awakening to arise in front of us step by step because we're not indulging in or not engaging in mind states that are harmful. We're developing a heart that is is, um, full of boundless goodwill, little by little, as much as we can. And it doesn't then it, when, when it really becomes perfected or highly developed, it really is independent of what other people are doing. But it, has, it certainly has an effect. And it does create much benefit. Just look at the results that we, of what we've all been developing here in these last few days together, just by restraining the normal patterns of judging and uh, negative opinions about ourselves, just by being aware of them and restraining them or, or going to the, the sense of, of well-being, of, of softening, of, of caring for the moment, of blessing each breath with our awareness. That's metta right there. And it is compassion too. And we rejoice in each other's spiritual support and companionship in this silent and very auspicious work. And this brings tremendous peace. It's um, a peace that is beyond any of the noise in the world. It, the noise in the world w- won't stop, but the peace that we develop within us will grow because we know the possibility of it. So we just keep wishing. We, we wish for more and we work for it. It's not just sitting there saying, may they all be well, may I be well. But there's a, a like a farmer just doesn't say, may my fields grow, but the farmer plants little seeds and waters them. And then the sun comes and does its work and the fields grow and and bring nutritional benefit. And it's the same with with our Dhamma work. It's not just by wishing it, but behind it is a, a real purified and rarefied intention. And the intention comes from understanding the power of goodness, goodwill, a mind that is full of loving kindness uh, is very pure, becomes very purified. A compassionate heart is spacious and it holds negativity without allowing it to burden us. It helps us to dispel darkness. Even if it's a tiny little light, if you'd shut all the lights in here, it would be dark. But if we lit one candle, we could see already. This is the power of metta.
<laughs> Where to begin? All right. Uh, Jane is asking about <clears throat> Sayadaw's answer that he couldn't make me a bhikkhuni, but he could make me a bhikkhu. But then how did I become a bhikkhuni in the forest tradition? So, <clears throat> actually, I became a bhikkhuni uh, in Taiwan before um, the bhikkhuni ordination was available in, in, this, in the West. And what I learned was that the bhikkhuni tradition, the, the ordination of bhikkhunis was established by the Buddha. And it was only a century or more after the Buddha um, passed into Parinibbana that the Vinaya which he established, the Dhamma Vinaya which he established, was um, f- uh, picked up in different ways, in different uh, schools. I think there were 12 or more. And only about six of them have survived um, in documents. But the difference between them is not great. There's minor differences. But the original Dhamma Vinaya established by the Buddha is still the predominant one that is used wherever the bhikkhuni tradition or bhikkhuni training exists in this world. So for the, the Theravadan tradition uh, in Sri Lanka, bhikkhuni ordination died out over 900 years ago. But in China, it has survived. In fact, 1601 years ago, <laughs> to be precise, there were a group of bhikkhunis that traveled from Sri Lanka in a merchant ship to Taiwan. These bhikkhunis, led by Ayadevasara, were um, asked to come to Taiwan to ordain women. Already monks had gone and ordained men. And there was, um, Buddhism was growing in Taiwan. And there was a monk who had come from Taiwan to uh, Sri Lanka and he was searching for the um, more detailed documents, Vinaya documents, that he could then bring to Taiwanese um, monasteries for the study and um, to spread the teachings. And he also wrote in his chronicles or his diaries about these nuns that traveled. So there are two historical records of their journey to Taiwan and the establishment of the bhikkhuni tradition in Taiwan with dual ordination, commonly known in the Chinese history, but perhaps only um, translated into English in more recent times. So when I, <clears throat> when I went to Taiwan to take the bhikkhuni training, the nuns there were quite surprised why I would come to them. 
when they had they were very familiar with the fact that they themselves in their uh, 1600-year-old tradition had received bhikkhuni ordination from Sri Lanka. Are you following? Yeah. And so for me it was a great joy to know that what I was actually receiving was a transmission that went right back to Mahapajat Patiko to me. And, uh, and I felt that I was just bringing it back to my own homeland. It was a great joy for me. And then, at first, when I realized the consequences of what I had done, um, I decided that I wouldn't tell anyone. Because it meant that I could no longer be part of the nuns' community in England. I did write to them and say, this is what I've done. I did write to Lung Po Sumedho and Lung Po Suchito and inform my elders what I had done. And uh, I was told by one of the monks that I couldn't be a closet bhikkhuni. And that I should let people know. And that was an encouragement. So, and then pretty soon somebody asked me, uh, Sister Nimala, in fact, asked me if I would train her soon after I arrived in Canada on invitation from the Buddhist community in Ottawa. And I said yes. And she, in six months or less, will become a bhikkhuni in California. Um, it'll be a dual ordination, and uh, Bhikkhu Bodhi will be there, and Ayatataloka, and a group of Theravadan um, bhikkhus and bhikkhunis performing this ordination. Um, but it's not the forest tradition, it's not Thai. It's just not at this time. But in generations to come, this will all be normalized. And we won't have to struggle with um, strong views or anything. Just like women's suffrage a hundred years ago, we don't even think about it now. Women just vote. So there's really no reason to be anxious. We just have to be patient. So just to repeat that, the 
Buddha's word on loving kindness, where it's in order to be able to really develop and spread loving kindness, we have to be unburdened with duties. Does this mean that we ha- we're working but we're not really burdened by it? We're mindful? Or does it mean we don't have a job? <laughs> well, <laughs> I think everybody has a job. <laughs> everybody has duties. We all have duties, don't we? Yeah. If you're a human being, you have, you have a sense of responsibility, conscience and concern and concern for your fellow humans. If you're married, your wife, your children, your husband, your mother, your father, your relatives, you always have some sense of responsibilities and that's appropriate. Yeah. Uh, and then we need livelihood, we need material food, clothes, and the wherewithal to, to um, acquire and, and store those. And all that's part of our, in order to fulfill our responsibilities, we have to get the material uh, requ- uh, requisites in order to carry that out. Yeah. So, but then here it's unburdened with duties, so Certainly, it's always right livelihood is, I think, a major topic, really. And it would be really interesting to, you know, to talk and, you know, forums and workshops on what is right livelihood. We're here on a retreat, which is a very specialized form of Dhamma practice, very specialized. And it tends to be, you know, the one major form of Dhamma practice. And perhaps that has its strengths, but also its weaknesses in that, you know, it's, it's very important, but then how does it ter- translate into what we call right livelihood? Yeah, because that's what we're doing most of the time, all of us. So, yeah, um, right livelihood basically, first of all, means ethical, non-abusive, uh, non-destructive livelihood. And that's the obvious feature of it. Uh, less obvious, because I think in the time of the Buddha, it was less a performance, competition, capitalist, mercantile scenario. You're just basically farming. And, but now, really, the, for me, the, one of the major topics of right life is how to not just get totally overwhelmed by the amount of work and the pressure of it. And uh, that does seem to be the major issue, I think people because it as you get more stuff going it it diminishes or it can diminish one's uh, mindfulness in that state of diminished mindfulness we don't act so skillfully we end up working harder and then we in order to relax we've got to spend money to get relaxed so we spend a lot of money getting relaxed to get over it and then we've got to work some more <laughs> to get more money, so it builds up, you know, and how to kind of find somewhere in all that, and there's this huge pressure from the, from the you know, employers and the business to work harder and get more and you know, cut down on, you know, increase the profits and cut down on the costs and all that, which is the labor force has to, has to bear the crunch of that, you know, of the cost cutting and performance drives. So I think these really are um, big topics. Uh, I don't have a simple answer. Um, 
But certainly, you know, meditation is so important just to find a place to pull out of that energy. And uh, renunciation, trying to really simplify one's needs, is helpful to pull out of that overwhelm. If we can simplify our needs, we've got some sense of no longer being so driven, you know, so I, I don't need to work so hard or I don't need to work seven days a week or whatever it is. I can take a lesser wage and uh, just minimalize my expenditure. Um, so then Dharma practice really is, is so important to, um, to try to get a hold of right livelihood, you know? you know, because in it, if, you, if you're just embedded in it, it just does keep pushing one along so that it becomes almost, uh, for some people, they don't know what to do if they're not working. You know, it begets, so you get so, so programmed by it that without it, people feel, well, what's lost, you know? Um, so, uh, you know, in my own life, I don't have to, have to work for a salary, but certainly, you know, there are many responsibilities. And because I'm not getting paid for it, and because of the nature of what I'm doing, those responsibilities are not something I take casually, because it's not just for money, it's for people's welfare, (laughs) and for the welfare of the Sangha, and for the welfare of the monastery, and, you know, these are not just material needs, these are psychological, spiritual needs. So, um, you know, how to not get overwhelmed by it? And uh, certainly it's a continual assessment of what is my resource? What can I do? What, what, are, what is my resource? What am I capable of doing? And when do I have to say, that's, all I, that's, it, that's it. If I do any more, I'm losing, losing the capacity. You know, if I get too unburdened with duties, I don't operate properly. So I, you know, it just creates the limitation. And that's for myself. And I think it's something that you know, we all have to bear in mind, like, every day there's less of our life energy is less. Every day there's less, there's less. <laughs> it doesn't get more, it gets less. Where is it going? <laughs> you know, where is it going to? And the more, and our mind is continually being programmed by what we put it into. What are we putting our minds into? The more you put it into that mode, the more it's going to stay that way. It's just a simple law of karma. You, as, you, as you develop, you train your mind in certain ways, that's the way it's going to stay. So, you know, the real sense of don't, you know, don't get burdened by this. Don't, um, because it, would, it doesn't go anywhere. You know, it doesn't go anywhere useful in the end. If we can just look at it as uh, something that provides a particular... Uh, material function, um, something we feel good about doing, you know, so it is worthwhile. We do feel it's an honor or a good thing to be doing. Um, and that we can remain clear with that, clear about that. And if you can't get those three going, it's imp- probably good to start assessing, you know, how can I change this state of affairs? Yeah. You know, as if what I'm doing, I don't even feel is worthwhile and useful. <laughs> you know, far from giving me some money, well, that's useful. Um, but then if it's becoming overwhelming, burden, 
then this is not for anybody's welfare, really. Yeah. So it's a good, it's a good, it's a checkpoint to come back to. If we don't have the resource, the mental resource, the energetic resource, then we can't really live our life. You know, we can't really be responsible. We're just driven, and then. You know, a planet, a planet or a nation of driven beings is not a good, good thing to have going. So, um, again, reflection on death is like every day. Maybe feeling, <clears throat> you know, let the work end. It won't end. You've got to make it end. <laughs> You've got to make it end at the end of the day or at a certain time. It stops. It's got to stop because it doesn't stop by itself. <laughs> You know, so that sense of finished enough, forget it, you know, it's always unfinished. Put it down. Make a real discipline out of putting it down. And again, it's not up for me. I'm so inexperienced in this, you know, in, in making a living as a salary, I can't really judge or, you know, you know teach, instruct you because I've I never done it. But so that's my earnest wish and recommendation that, you know, we, we do find a way to, to limit that because it uh, kills people. You know, my father died of overwork. My grandfather died of overwork. I looked at that and thought, oh, I'm getting out of here. <laughs> 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 you know, you look at the family history, think, you know, oh, right. <laughs> Enough, you know. Thanks. regarding those matters. Um, and I guess the question is, do you have any guidance on that in terms of what guides you when you offer feedback to another when their behavior might be unskillful, maybe not even consciously, but has an impact either on yourself or the community? And in my mind, I think of the Parmes, on the one hand, there's renunciation. When do we not speak? And, and really, we're always practicing with ourselves. But when do we also come forward with courage and truthfulness? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So uh, if I can try to summarize the question for the benefit of, of others about uh, practicing with sila, and particularly, you're interested in, in the area of giving feedback to others in, uh, in, in the context of our lives, so lay life, 
because we, as you mentioned, in the monastic order, we have ways of uh, training ourselves and rules, you know, sort of uh, guidelines about giving and receiving feedback, um, reflections, and uh, and we're, 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 we've all got a shared aspiration, which helps. And that's absent in the lives of uh, most of, many people, perhaps many, if not most of you. And so how to practice with that, and how uh, particularly to to reflect to somebody, did I hear it right, if they're causing harm in their, through their speech or actions, what are skillful ways perhaps to, to communicate that? And yeah, that's, um, I mean, that, I feel like I'm still learning that, even though I've got the support of the monastic life and all of the, you know, 20 years and all of that, I still get it wrong. And, uh, you know, I do, I, I think that the principles that we have in the monastic uh, life are applicable to, you know, whatever life we're living. And um, a lot of it, of course, has to do with just the individual, the particular situation. So, of course, there's no one right response in every situation. And uh, that takes wisdom. And so part of it, of course, is what we're doing here, just developing the mindfulness that develop, that uh, uh, allows for wisdom to arise. And that will help. Uh, that, I mean, that's a major help, I would say. This practice that we're doing, even though, yes, it's true, we're not uh, engaged in relationship with others directly in, in the usual sense when we're practicing meditation, that, that, that does help. So having that basis of discernment or wisdom, being able to see you know, where my upset, you know, my feelings come from. So if I can see sometimes, you know, it's sometimes I see that it's my own projections. And, oh, thank goodness I caught myself before I just gave feedback to that person because actually they weren't doing anything wrong. It was just my stuff. And so being able to look at myself first, that's one of the principles that we have. And that applies to everyone, you know. So am I free from this... Um, fault or uh, behavior that I'm wanting to, you know, mirror to somebody else. And if I'm not, I'm being very conscious of that, maybe I still need to say something because they're actually causing harm. And I see, well, yes, I have this fault myself. So personally, I'll I'll often mention, uh, if it comes to the point where I'm having a conversation with them about it, then I'll include, usually pretty quickly, the admission the acknowledgement that, you know, this is something I'm working with too. Um, and that often helps. Uh, time and place is a, is a really important consideration and something that we're required to look at in that area. And it can take a long time sometimes. Of course, since the situations are different, if it's an imminent, you know, something, somebody's about to hurt somebody, well, you have to just go in there. It might not feel like the right time or place. You have to do the best you can. But if it's something subtle, then we can wait. And I remember one monk saying that uh, you know he was he was upset by um, another of the monks. Um, you know, so, some particular area of their relationship or their lives together, and and he was you know so upset that he just couldn't. He had to wait. Um, we're supposed to really wait until we're free from our own from ill will, free from our own reaction. And he said he he had to wait two years before he could talk to this monk about this particular point. I don't even know what it was. 
but I can relate to that. You know, sometimes it's just a matter of, okay, right, don't, I won't forget it, but it's not time yet. And there's been, you know, I, and I've had monks uh, invite me, you know, kind of, please give me feedback if I do something that's upsetting to you. And they actually are doing something that I find is upsetting. And yet, I know that if I start, start talking to him about this now, my irritation, my anger, my hurt is going to come through. So I don't. I wait. Um, so being okay in myself about it and really seeing, can I come from how it's uh, put in our guidelines is uh, uh, coming from a place of loving kindness. So you're not coming from a place of wanting to put someone in their place or coming from a place of loving kindness. So of course that would be, that would include a situation like I'm describing now where I'm just being irritated by somebody in some way. But it would also, of course, include any situation where, okay, you know, this person is harming this person or, or me or, or, or these people. And so it, the loving kindness is, is for all of us. It's for me as well as for the, the person I'm wanting to give feedback to as well as whoever else is involved. So just remembering that. And, and also with these things, of course, the principle that Ajahn Suchito was mentioning and Lumpa Ajahn Chah would uh, keep reminding his uh, disciples uh, of, of good enough. You know, we can't, we can't be perfect with these things. We won't find maybe the perfect time or place or just, you know, be full of the kind of loving kindness we envision or anything like that, which is good enough, is often as, as, good, as good as we can do. Um, but these principles are very important. And then I, you, I find that uh, talking about, you know, how, how it is for me, Rather than saying to somebody, and, and you may be very well aware of these principles because they're, they're not just Buddhist principles. There's a lot of good work being done uh, in, in uh, these areas these days. But not saying, you know, this is what you're doing and you should stop. Or, you know, look at, look at what you're doing. Not even assuming that it is what you're doing. But when I'm communicating, I try to say, well, this is how it feels to me. You know, when you do this, this is how, how I, I'm affected. And, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems to me like you're doing this. And, and sometimes, you know, it, it can sound a little silly, maybe, but it, it's, it's, it's important, I've found, in terms of if I want it to be uh, effective communica- actual communication and to avoid the usual tendency, which is defensiveness. The person I'm speaking to will become defensive. Then there's a reaction, and then I have a reaction, and then we're back in that old dynamic. So those kinds of principles can apply to all of us. And practicing sila, or integrity, of course, is one, something which we, again, just have to do the best we can in the situation where we are. And it's not, you know, that's why we have thing, places like IMS or like the monasteries where it's a conscious shared commitment that at least we're all going to try to, you know, uh, have um, to not... Uh, lie to each other or undermine each other or take advantage of each other. And out there, it's, we don't have those kinds of shared commitments. So it really depends on the workspace, you know, the kinds of people involved and the, the family. And Did that come close to what you were asking? Explain the uh, 
if there is a difference between um, mind and awareness. Are they really two different phenomena or is it one phenomena? Yes. No, I, I'll give a bit of a more of a my own kind of reflection on it, um, and also maybe returning to the original uh, question about you know is it innate or something we develop. So did everyone hear the question? It was uh, the difference between mind and awareness. To say something about that, yes. Well, I mean, obviously these are words. And, as, and words can be used in different ways. So that's one of the things that I, uh, you know, recognize in, in any teaching that I hear or read or, or, or receive around in this area is that, you know, different people will use the same words in different ways. So there's that. There's also the fact that, you know, our practice different people have different characters and there are different Dhamma doorways. We have different paths into the same place. So there can be, you know, a, a different experience of, of how to arrive. Um, uh, and some, so the, this mind and awareness and consciousness and the different ways that we can talk about the observing mind or the witness or presence was a word I was using the other day. I mean, there are different ways of, of pointing to our experience of consciousness or our experience of the mind. And uh, different people who practice, you know, pr- people who practice will have, uh, not only will they maybe use these words in different ways, but they'll also have a, perhaps a different experience of how they got brought to a particular you know, a place of, of freedom. Um, some through particular meditation technique, and so you'll have some teachers in any tradition who will be absolutely 100% sure that you must do it this way, and this is the right way and no other way. And it may be that they're deluded, you know, they have blind belief and, and, and they're off, but it also may be that they really have actually arrived at true insight, and yet it had to be that way for them. They tried the other things, it didn't work, and really in their experience, it was not until they did exactly what they did in just that way that they got there. So it's not, so in that case, it's not really wrong for them to be saying you have to do it that way from their own perspective. And yet, it's not true, in quotes, because you can, you can come at it a different way. And there's this image I like with the, uh, that the Buddha gives in one of the sermons, which is famous about the blind men touching the same elephant. You know, and, and they're actually, they got the same elephant there. But describing it to each other, one will have the ear and say, well, an elephant is floppy and hairy. And another will have the tusk and say, no, 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 he doesn't have an elephant. An elephant is hard and it's crisp and it's pointy at the end, and, and so on. And so actually they've got, they've got the same thing, but the different uh, perspectives have to do with character, conditioning, kamma. Uh, the taste, you know, what the, the truth that is... Uh, arrived at will be is the same is one there's not different truths but the way that it's expressed can be different so then so to come back to your question of mind and awareness this is these are words which are used in different ways by different people and even sometimes in different ways by the same people um, I mean Ajahn Sumedho is one of the greatest uh, perpetrators of this 
blessing of a teaching is that, you know, he'll use the word consciousness in three different ways to mean three different things. Sometimes consciousness can mean vijnana, like the sense consciousness that Ajahn Suchita has been, you know, describing in some of the answers. Sight consciousness, sound consciousness, smell consciousness, taste consciousness, feeling consciousness, and mind consciousness, mano vijnana. That's often the English word consciousness is used to, to, to translate that. But then also, uh, Ajahn Sumedho will sometimes use the word consciousness to mean it as a way of pointing to what we normally in English, when we're growing up, think of as consciousness, which is just this knowing sense. We don't you know, grow up with this particular Buddhist definition of the word consciousness. So mind and awareness, these are things which... They're words that point, and that would be my, you know, there's not much um, I, could, I could, you know, say how I'm using those two words in a, on a particular day, but that might be slightly different than the way Ajahn Suchito uses those particular words, and it might be different from another, t- from another, from my maiden Nandi, and from, you know, it might be different from how I'll use them next year. Uh, that sounds like a very confusing answer. <laughs> but it's... It's, you know, just to, to, to point out that the words are not the thing, which I'm, I, I imagine you, you, you recognize. And so awareness, you know, what is it? It's, it's like a koan, you know, the, 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 the Zen tradition, the Soto Zen and some of the uh, other Zen traditions are very good at using these kind of unanswerable questions as ways to help you turn your mind, you know, towards itself or to turn it in a way which, you know, to kind of grasp something from a different angle that you never, you never saw as a possibility. A sort of quantum leap of you know, a different sort of thing that you're not, you're not coming from the same kind of mental physics to get at the problem. So uh, awareness is one of these things where you can use it in just a simple sense, okay, I'm aware now, and then, oh, I fell asleep and I wasn't aware then. And that's, that's a perfectly valid and ordinary use of the word. You can also use it in a way where it's pointing to uh, a sense of, you know, a, a deeper sense of knowing, which, uh, again, difficult to talk about, but it, it, it can be more, more conscious or less conscious, deeper or, or more shallow. And as we all practice meditation, we have a sense of that, of kind of uh, levels of mindfulness or depth of mindfulness and mind. And, and so awareness then is still something which gets affected. It's like a mind state, a state of awareness. Um, awareness also can point to what you might call of the, the, what I think was being asked about before, the intuitive awareness, that sort of ground of awareness, which for me, these are just ways of, of using words to point to something which can't be articulated. And therefore, the, the kind of, that's why I sort of said yes, because it's like both. It's neither right nor wrong. It's not this, it's not that. How can you point to it? You have to recognize it. So it's a depth of awareness which, when it's touched into, for me, the articulation, if I were to try to articulate it, feels like it, it's always right here. It's always been here. How could it not be? It's always here all the time, whether or not I'm more deeply, you know, concentrated or, or aware in quotes or less aware. It's, it's what encompasses all, always there. So I used this image the other night of tuning in, 
to something that's always already present. And those are just w- words and ways of, of pointing. And uh, traditionally in Theravada Buddhism, they don't use those kinds of ways of pointing. I mean, we're a little bit different in the forest tradition in Thailand. You have more teachers who use idiosyncratic language from their own experience, because that's the kind of tradition it is. And they'll use the Pali words which kind of in, in ways which don't always correspond with, with uh, the books in the ways that they've been uh, described in academic traditions. So there's this word chitta, you know, that, that can be translated into English as mind or heart, because in, in Thailand really the heart is, the mind is here, it's not up here. So, so it's heart-mind maybe with a slash. So it's chitta, and, and a great debate about, okay, can, does chitta, is that nibbana? Is it the same thing? Is it not, you know, does it, is that what knows the, the khandas as the khandas, the five khandas? Now, if you look in the books and you go by the, the academic Theravada tradition, well, there's nothing outside the five khandas which knows the five khandas. That's like a self, positing a self. And so sometimes in the forest tradition, it's not, uh, the, those teachers aren't, um, uh, they're not kosher with some of the other teaching traditions within Theravada, and, and vice versa, because the, the other ones seem to be too literalistic or annihilationist. You know, there's, there's absolutely nothing there. I'd say ni- neither is right, neither is wrong. It really depends on who's, where the person who's using these words is coming from in terms of their realization. And it may be from a place of realization and truth in either case, because both could be used accurately to try to articulate this truth which can't really be articulated. There's a kind of, um, I hope I'm not getting too complicated again in the way that I'm describing this, but these are just ways I've reflected on it. Uh, There's sort of a tradition in spiritual effort in different religious traditions of affirmation or negation as a way to point the heart, point the mind to realize something, to either say, you know, truth is this, it's this and it's this, and it's not that, you know, uh, and it's, you get there by step one, then you go to step two, then you go to step three. And the Catholic tradition, uh, the monastic tradition, developed words, I believe, I don't know too well, but I've heard. Uh, I think it's apophatic and cataphatic. You don't have to remember this when you go back home. But the apophatic and the cataphatic, the cataphatic, I think, are the literalists who say, God is this. You know, it, it's this, and, and, you'll he- and you'll have this in different traditions. And it's not that it's a wrong way to approach things. It's like, okay, this is what this word means. Meditation is this, it's not that. You know, awareness means this, it does not mean that. And it's a way of, of, of defining your terms and your concepts and your language and, and moving through. And some people's minds just have to work that way, you know. And, uh, and then the apophatic tradition is, is the, the via negativa, the way of negation. And... In Buddhism, you'll find both, but the Buddha often taught with that uh, way of saying what the truth isn't. It's not this, and it's not that. And so, you know, you'll have the negative ways of talking about loving-kindness as non-hatred and, you know, non-delusion. So Nibbana is non-delusion, and it's not this, and it's not that. So sometimes when somebody would come and ask the Buddha a question like this, he'd, he'd give a, an answer in one way, and other times he'd give it in the other way, saying it's not this, is not that, and then sometimes he just keeps silent. So it often depend on where he, 
what was going to be helpful for the questioner, realizing that these are all ways of affecting our hearts, having they're functional, these kinds of teachings as I see them and have experienced them, they're functional. How, how is it, how, what, is, what is the effect that it's having in terms of my practice and my realization? You know, if I take this teaching and I just blindly believe it, and I say, look, this is what the books say. So, you know, if Lumpo Dun says that, you know, the second noble truth is the heart not going out, it's the heart staying here, well, he's, I mean, that's not Buddhism, because this is Buddhism right here in this book, and that's true and it's right, and it's true, I mean, that is right. But, also, what's really being pointed to by the Buddha and through the teachings contained in that book, and what's Lumpo Dun pointing to when he says it's the heart not going out to things, talking about not attaching. So it's again these ways of using words and I would say mind and awareness can be used in those different ways. If uh, Maybe that's a very long way to answer your question. And I bet Ajahn Suchito probably wants to say a few things now. <laughs> or maybe not. One always feels like one's treading on thin ice when one gets into these. these it's, they're classic debates in the Buddhist world and especially the Theravadan world. And you'll find lots of views and opinions about them. Yeah. Either my mind or my awareness has recognized it's 9.39. <laughs> and intuitively I realize faculties are dwindling, days and nights relentlessly passing, uh, time to reflect on ending. Thank you. <clears throat>